chapters, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, are the, cur- are the blessings and curses of the Mosaic Covenant. So if I'm under the Mosaic Covenant, um, uh, Daryl and I had a brief conversation uh, just before we started this morning, and, and um, he was listening to somebody from another institution, not Dallas. I don't know. I, I, I had hoped I had taught him better, but <laughs> he, he was saying that in this particular uh, recording he was listening to, a fellow said that the, the Mosaic Law is a covenant of grace. It is not. It's a covenant of works. That's what Paul calls it. Um, and uh, Now, the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy are a message of faith. The Mosaic Covenant is a relatively small part of that, of that body, Leviticus, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Are, are you with me here? Um, God gives the law, but as we said in recent weeks, he doesn't anticipate that they're going to keep it. He requires them to, but he doesn't from that assume that they are in fact going to keep it. Because Moses doesn't think so. And in fact, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, they don't keep it. So, so uh, the, the point is that the reason they got law, as we've been saying since about chapter 2 or 3 of Romans, the reason they got law is that they were sinful. Uh, and uh, so... The covenant curse is going to be a, cons- a considerable part, both of the Old Testament revelation about God's relationship with Israel. But it now comes to be a significant part of what's going on in Romans 8. But it serves a purpose in Romans 8. And that purpose is to say, God has transformed what was, and this is the next slide if I remember, the power of God in the gospel has transformed covenant curse into covenant blessing. That's the most astonishing thing I've ever ever run across, at least insofar as the Mosaic Covenant is concerned. What was an indication that Israel was separated from the love of God? Look again at verse 35. You have who, but it would be better to translate what, shall separate us from the love of God, of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress and so on, yes? And when... A Bible teacher says, and so on, you know he doesn't know the rest by memory. So I just revealed myself. But um, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, why would he ask that? And we asked last week, why would a sword separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is, under the Mosaic Covenant, this was a good indication that you were separated from the love of God. Yes or no? A sword? Pardon? Yeah, the, the covenant curse is a good indication. It's one of the covenant curses, as, as we saw in the previous slide. The, the, uh, the point then is, if Israel is suffering persecution, if they are suffering uh, famine or nakedness or peril or sword, it is because they have broken the covenant for the most part. And if they've broken the covenant, they need to repent and get back right in the covenant. Does this make sense to you? Uh, so that they can experience and enjoy the blessing of God. But they never seem to gather that. As in Romans 1, 
the sinner, when he looks at himself, never considers himself that bad. No, cons- no sinner considers himself that bad. Well, I'm better than so-and-so. Yes? Well, I may be a thief, <laughs> but I'm not like those folks at church. I'm not a hypocrite, at least I'll admit it. Yes? Are you with me here? I'm always better than somebody else. But Paul wrote 1, 2, and 3, chapters 1, 2, and 3, to disabuse us of that idea. I am not better than anyone else. Yes? We are all equally condemned under sin in order to establish the notion that different ethnic groups can actually live together in harmony in the body of Christ. So... um, uh, turn to Romans 15 just a second. Let's, let's review this. Um, I've been using verse 7 as a summary book, a verse for the book. Romans 15, 7. <clears throat> for this reason, receive one another. Well, who's to receive one another? Well, specifically, the weak and the strong, yes? But who are the weak? The, the vegetarians. What, 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 what kind? And they have two, two issues that they're concerned about. They're concerned about diet and they're concerned about the day of worship. Because they honor one day above another. Yes? What kind of group, what ethnic group would be most concerned about diet and honoring one day above another? Jews. The strong, who are they? They're the meat eaters. They, they, they are inclined to uh, eat meat and may, Paul doesn't say that they do, but they might view every day as equally a day for worship for God. Well, who would they be most likely ethnically? Gentiles. Folks, now it doesn't even use the word uh, Gentiles as much in the book of, of, of Romans Remember um, Romans 1.18, I'm sorry, 1.17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. No, Greek. Greek. Do you know anything about Greek self-conceptions? They're the, they think they're the best. Barbarians have no culture because they don't speak Greek. Are you with me here? So Greeks thought they were the best, and Jews thought they were the best. So, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm back to the problem. Who's better? Neither. And that's part of an address in the church for us to begin to get over our self-righteousness Related to anything that's on the base uh, that that is that is calculated on a merely human basis, the only thing that makes us distinctive is Christ. Jim, yes. In Corinthians, it, does it talk about God chooses the weak? Chapter yeah. Chapter one, verse twenty-six and twenty-seven. Uh, consider your calling, brothers. That and he's speaking to Greeks here. Consider your calling, brothers. That there are not many. Um, Wise, thank you. Not many powerful, not many well-born, for God has chosen the foolish things of the earth to confound the wise. Hmm? Walmart. Walmart. So, 
So the, the issue for us in Romans uh, 15, verse 7, wherefore receive one another as Christ received you. Then is summarizing chapters 1 to 11, how has Christ received us? He received us in our sin without requiring us to give up our sin. He called us to love him. Yes? Because when you love someone, you will always act in their best interest. Yes or no? So it's not a matter of keeping a bunch of rules. It's a matter of doing what is your heart to do because you love the Lord and you you want to do what he's interested in. Am I making sense to you? So it turns out that people who receive one another as Christ received you, I'm sorry, who, who understand how Christ received you, will receive one another. Because how can I? I we, we, we drove down the street this morning. Our house has the, the uh, uh, garage in the back like so many houses in Dallas have. We drove her down the street behind us going to get our breakfast, and there was a beautiful um, recent model Jaguar sitting in the street. <laughs> Haven't seen that very much. I imagine it's a visitor to the home. Um, but a beautiful, it was gorgeous. I thought, if I had a Jaguar... The Hyundai Sonata would be in the in the driveway. <laughs> Are you with me? Yeah. If I would value a Jaguar, how can I not value those who are purchased by the blood of Christ and value them at the cost of the blood of Christ? Wherefore, receive one another as Christ received you for the glory of God. Are you with me here? Now, in in light of that, then he says. Uh, verse 8, do notice that 15.7 comes before verse 8? Yes. So verse 8, for I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcision for the sake of the truth of God to confirm the promises of the fathers and that the Gentiles, now he uses the term Gentiles, uh, might glorify God because of grace, because of mercy, as it is written, for this reason, I will confess you among the nations, and I will sing praise to your name. And again, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, sing, all you Gentiles, about the Lord, and uh, let, them pra- let all the peoples praise him, and so forth. Are you with me here? The Gentiles have no standing except in Christ. And the Jews have no standing except in Christ. Then, when I come to chapter 8 and verse 35, uh, but what if you're, stu- you're suffering covenant curse? I want you to remember that when Paul wrote Romans, sometime in the mid-50s, maybe 56 AD, when Paul wrote Romans, not much of the New Testament existed. At that, point, at that point, and the Romans might not have had any of it up until that time. I, who knows? Um, Mark, 
when was Mark written? Mark was probably written for a Roman audience. When was it written? I don't know. Was it written early? Was it written late? I don't know. My, my heart is to say it was probably written early, but it may not have been written until the late 50s or the early 60s. Fred? Yeah, well, I'm not sure anyone would know the answer to this, but as Paul was writing to the church in Rome, he does say to the Greeks, how many of the non-Jews there would have been Greeks as opposed to slaves who were from barbarian land? So, yeah. Uh, was it truly a Greek audience, the non-Jews? It was... It was the Gentile audience was a was a primarily probably a primarily Roman audience, but they valued Greek culture above even Roman culture. So if you could afford it, you had a Greek slave teaching your children uh, Greek literature, Greek language. Uh, so even if you were poor, as most people were, um, according to demographic studies, about I, th- I can't remember. Maybe it's half of 1% of the population was rich of the entire Mediterranean basin. And another 1.5% might have been what we would consider middle class, and the rest were either slave or free, but they were the, the free folk were, were profoundly poor, living one to two, two to three days from uh, starvation. Um, but, but you always value what the elite of your society values. I say you always do. People, by and large, value what the elite of their society value. Yes? Mm-hmm. And in that case, then, to, to talk about Greeks, and Paul wrote in Greek, to Rome. So he expected a significant portion of the people to understand. Um, many, by the way, of the slaves would have been Greek because you became a slave by uh, largely by warfare, and, Paul, and Rome had been making war in Greece in the Greek-speaking regions for quite some time at that point. So you had a lot of Greek slaves. Um, so all of this bears on that issue, the, the, the Greekness of the of the of the congregations. Church, yeah, and not so much slaves from what they would call the barbarian world. But they no, but but my, mainly uh, slaves who were Greek. Um, um, a, Approximately, it's approaching half of the names in Romans 16 are slave names, and many of them are Greek names, uh, which is a fascinating observation. We'll talk about that in, oh, maybe next spring. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but going on here, back, back to Romans 9, the, the issue is that I can't even look at suffering now as a means of evaluating your spirituality. Because I don't know what God's doing in your life. I have no idea what God's doing in your life. You and I don't even have, have any idea of what God's doing in our lives. When suffering comes, we struggle with it. Bernie asked the question on the way upstairs this, this morning, or as we met at, at the elevator, he said, uh, if the Holy Spirit is interceding with unutterable words, if they could be uttered and we could hear them, I wonder what they would be. And we, we talked about it for a minute, and he said, I think he'd be saying things that we don't want to hear and we don't want to happen. We'd want him to change them. Did I represent you right, Bernie? So I think he's right. So when I have suffering, and when you have suffering, when I have suffering, it's a terrible, uh, uh, terrible experience and event, and I, uh, I need your sympathy. 
when you're suffering something wrong in your life. <laughs> Amen? Well, he just needs to get a job, whatever kind of job it is. If it's sacking groceries, he needs to get a job. You know how hard to get it is a job? Hmm? I speak English once in a while. You know how hard it is to get a do- job? I, I can't stock trade. Do you know how hard it is to get a grocery job when you have a doctorate? Pardon? It's nearly impossible. Yeah, if you're overqualified, it's like, well, they just won't hire you. Yeah. So, um, so, so how are we to view suffering? Well, Paul tells us. What's his question in verse 35? What's the answer? Nothing. Nothing. And then he clarifies it, verse 36. And here's where most of our time is going to spend. In fact, most of the rest of our time is going to be spent here uh, this morning. This quotation is too important. You need to understand where it came from and why. And by this, by the way, my, one of my goals always in teaching the Bible is to help people understand how to study the Bible better. I don't, I don't, I'm not so, I, I am concerned that you understand what the text means. But I'm also equally concerned for you to become aware of how to study the Bible better. So he says, um, uh, shall uh, distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as, as it is written. For your sake, we are put to death all day long. We are counted like sheep to be slaughtered. When we look at a New Testament quotation of the old, we tend to look at it kind of like the old joke that I've told you before, and I'm sorry to repeat it, but it, it fits this setting. There was a, an old main shopkeeper, had kind of a general store, and he had a reputation of quoting a Bible verse for everything that happened. And so, John, have you heard this? Okay. One day, a Cadillac drove up with a horse trailer on the back, big long horns on the front. Guy got out with a big silver buckle and the cowboy hat and boots. He came in and he said, son, it's starting to rain outside and I got a horse out there I want to buy a horse blanket for. So the shopkeeper went over to the stack of horse blankets and pulled one off and he brought it over and he said that'll be ten dollars fellow said uh, I need to make something clear I got me an expensive horse out there and I don't want no cheap horse blanket on it so the shopkeeper went back and got another one off the same stack and he said that'll be twenty five dollars fellow said I thought I made myself clear that horse is too valuable. I don't want no cheap horse blanket on it. So he went back, got it off the same stack of horse blankets, got another one, put it out, and he said, that'll be $50. And the shopper said, well, that's better. And he paid his $50 and left. And there were a couple of guys sitting over there, the Spit and Whittle Club. Do you remember the Spit and Whittle Clubs? They were sitting over there, and I thought, what verse is this fellow going to quote? The shopkeeper lifted his eyes to heaven and he said he was a stranger and I took him in. <laughs> I don't know if it's 
<laughs> that too. That would have been a better one. But this, what's happened there is, of course, that the shopkeeper took the te- took the verse because the words fit the situation, but the meaning of the text was completely violated. What? <laughs> well, we have that expression in English to take somebody in. Yeah, well, he really took him in, you know, and, and we by, mean by that he hoodwinked him completely. Uh, in the in the necessary meaning of that in its original setting in Matthew, uh, he was a stranger and I took him in. I took him into my home and cared for him. Yes, um, we ignore the context of the Old Testament um, in order to use our quotations so that they fit the situation often. Often, though, we don't even know the context. And because we don't know the context, we don't know what the verse ought to mean. So it's important that we not only look back to Psalm 44 and see, ah, well, this was quoted from Psalm 44, and then simply return to the New Testament. It's necessary to study the text in its context. So I'd like you to turn to Psalm 44 We'll spend a good portion of our time remaining in that, uh, in that passage. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Psalm 44 is a lament psalm or a petitionary psalm. Uh, they're in trouble. Um, normally, a petitionary psalm starts out with, O Lord, and then a summary of the petition or a summary of the trouble that you're in. You know some, some of the most famous psalms are petitionary psalms. Uh, um, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, Psalm 51. Yes? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And so you're, you're implying both the trouble that you're in and the petition that you're asking for. But you typically start out a lament or a petitionary psalm with, O God. So I have, O God. But from this point, down through verse 9, he, uh, he changes what you normally do with a petitionary psalm. He starts with praise, and that's kind of unusual. Verses 1 to 3, he praises God for um, the history that God has with Israel and what God has done for them. Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their, their days and days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor, by their, nor did their arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. As I read this, I'm inclined, because um, I may not know the psalm, to read this, oh good, this is a psalm of praise. This is good. This is great. Praising Jesus. It's wonderful. But this is not, this is praise, but that's not its function. The psalmist is in deep trouble, and he doesn't understand why, as we'll make clear uh, after verse 9. Why is he in deep trouble? Uh, because God's abandoned them. You will say, now, Brother Jim. God never abandons his people. Amen? Amen? Lord, why is it? I look back over my life and there were so many places where there was only one set of footprints in the sand. Why? 
Why did you leave me there? And your answer, his answer is, that's when I carried you. Amen. But you, when you, when you are in those times when there's only one set of footprints in the sand, how does it feel? What'd you say, Terry? Awful. You feel so alone. You can't find God. You can't see. You can't see any way that God's involved in the circumstances. Pardon? Yeah. So these three verses we've just read should be read with a good deal of pain in your heart, in your in your voice. Not this is not for praise and worship time. Problem with praise and worship time is it never gives us a chance to pour out our pain and our our our, our confusion before God. Does that make sense to you? Verse four. It's uh, four to eight. It is. Um, um, so in verses 4 to 8, the psalmist will now express his own confidence. Not only do I have the history of God with Israel and all that he's done with them. By the way, what we've said in the past is, is valuable here. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. Though he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. So the psalmist appeals in verses 1 to 3 to what God has done in the past. But that's in the nation's past. The psalmist has himself a relationship with God. So verse 4, you are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our enemies. You have put, the, put to shame those who hate us. In God, and here I, I would depart from the translation that the ASV gives here um, he says in God we have boasted continually that's a possible translation part of our problem with doing our exegetical work is often we're dealing in probabilities and it's hard to know exactly what to do so I would given the circumstance I would translate this differently in God we will boast continually We will give thanks, and he does that in the second line. We will give thanks to your name forever. But then he turns to the lament section, verse 9. This takes us down through um, verse 16. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. How does he know God's not gone out with their armies? They didn't win, they were defeated. And you'll see that in the rest of this passage. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. Um, I said to you a few minutes ago that slavery in the ancient world was often associated with warfare. Even if you were a member of an army that won won the war, you could be taken captive and still sold as a slave. It's the way they, that's the way kings honored their officials, by going out to battle and getting enough plunder to, to reward their officials that sustained them. So that's why we read, for example, in Second uh, Samuel 11 and 12, in the, in the spring of the year when kings go out to war. That's why they went out to war, because uh, uh, wealth is a finite thing, 
you can't create wealth. You've got to go steal it or take it from somebody else. Nothing yes? Must Nothing must change. Uh, so th- they have gone out to battle. And as, uh, uh, later, we'll have to ask why. Are they simply in a land grab? Are they simply looking for plunder? And the answer I will give is no, but we'll have to get to that point. Verse, uh, so verse 12, in the battle, some of the Israelite army have been taken captive and they've been sold into slavery. Verse 13, you made us the, uh, the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and the reviler and the sight of the enemy and the avenger. This psalm is unusual in that at verse 17 it has what's called a protestation of innocence. We'll have to look at this and ask, what's going on here? Um, Sometimes, not not frequently, but sometimes in a lament or petition psalm, The terms are used interchangeably. Um, The psalmist will say, but but I have been faithful to you. And that's what they're going to say here. All this has come upon you, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. (laughs) Well, that's the question. Is it true? Uh, Turn to Psalm 71 and look at the last verse of the psalm. What do you read? That's the last verse of the psalm? Well, gracious me, I've, I've lost something then. Uh, I've lost a psalm. Look at, look at the end of Psalm 72 then. <laughs> they move things around in the Bible periodically. And I can't keep up with it. <laughs> What's the last? Ah, there it is. Psalm 72. Read it again. Yeah, the uh, Psalm seventy-two tells us something about the collection of the Book of Psalms. It was it was apparently collected in five books. Psalm seventy-two is the end of the second book. Psalm forty-two is the end of the first book. So, from the point of view of those who collected the Book of Psalms, who is the singer of Psalm forty-two? Uh, Psalm forty-four. David. Uh, there is a, a well-known scholar uh, in Old Testament studies named John H. Eaton. He wrote a book called Kingship and the Psalms. Um, there are three of us who agree with him, <laughs> or two that I know of. Uh, um, uh, Eaton argues that all of the Psalms are either about the Davidic kingship or about the divine kingship but if it's about the divine kingship, he rules through the Davidic king. Are you with me here? So when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament Psalms as relevant to Jesus, 
this now explains how it can do that. They think of all the Psalms as expressing something about Davidic kingship, or let me broaden it out and say the book of Psalms is a messianic book. Does that make sense to you? David is Messiah, and all of his sons are Messiahs, and so what is said in the, in the book of Psalms may be said about the Messiah for the, in, in certain ways. So here, my... Oh, I've lost my place. Uh, my sword does not give me victory is not a reference to the person named in the heading of Psalm 44, namely the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah are re- writing this psalm about the Davidic kingship. And if it's about David, if this is a psalm written for David, well, the heading of the psalm I just looked at, Sons of Korah, Psalm 44 now. Yeah, Psalm 44. Um, yeah. Um, my, my sword does not give me a victory. My, my, uh, 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 I can't stock trade here. Uh, it's actually, uh, verse 6. I do not trust in my bow, nor can my sword save me. The me here is probably going to be the Davidic king. And may well be a reference specifically to David. I want you to remember that David ordained uh, under the guidance of God that the sons of Korah would be the singers for the, for the Levite tribe in the, tab- in the temple to be built by, da- by Solomon. So here they're writing a psalm for David. And David has been out to battle and has been defeated. We know nothing of that. Correct? But I want you to remember something. All that we know about David is concluded in First and Second Samuel, First uh, Kings one and two, uh, roughly, and in First uh, Chronicles. That's not quite an, a, a complete account of a forty-year reign. Yes. So there's an awful lot about David we don't know. Is it possible? that God might have sent David out to battle and not given him victory. Yeah. Is it possible that David suffered complete defeat? No. I want you to remember verses 8 and 9. I'm sorry, 7 and 8. You have saved us from our foes, or I would rather read actually in verse 7, you save us from our foes, and you put those who hate us to shame. In God, we will make our boast all, uh, uh, continually. We will give thanks to your name forever. Well, what does he anticipate? If that's the right reading of this, these two verses, what does he anticipate? We're going back out to battle. The defeat of yesterday is not God's final word. Um, if the defeat of yesterday is not God's final word... We're going back out to battle. Does it mean he's going to leave his sword at home? No. He's going to take his sword. But he doesn't believe that God's silence is the final word for anything. So he goes on, um, verse uh, 44, 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. 
It's hard for me to place any time in Israel's history when we can say about them, we have not forgotten you. Through, uh, 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 we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. And we'll stop there. Is it possible that at some point in David's history, they did suffer defeat in a battle? Yeah. Fred? Jim, in contrast to this, consider what we read in the servant today in Psalm 18. Yeah. We read this. It said, where David said, uh, they attacked me in a moment when I was in distress, the Lord supported me. He rescued me because he delights in me. He rewarded me for doing right and restored me. See, there mm-hmm. he seems to be saying, my righteousness resulted mm-hmm. in, if we do right, then he rewards us. There, there is a reciprocity. In 44, it seems to be saying the opposite. Yeah, there is a reciprocity. God, if you look a little bit later, he says to the uh, to the upright, you deal in righteousness with the... Um, with the faithful, you deal in faithfulness. With the devious, you, you respond in, in crafty ways. And there is a reciprocity in the way God deals with people. Um, but, uh, but I don't have to take the point of view that these are contradictory, as, as I know you're not suggesting, but people could take that as saying there's a contradiction here. There isn't one, and I'll show you why in a few minutes. The question is then, in verses 44, 17 to 21, is the psalmist telling the truth? You know that not everything in the Bible is true. I know you thought you'd never hear a Dallas Seminary professor. Yes, you do know that. Because the Bible says, um, you shall not surely die. God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you will become like God, knowing good and evil, and that's a lie. Yes? But it's truly recorded. <laughs> Amen? Are you, yeah, you were getting worried, weren't you? Yeah. Uh, uh, um, uh, the Bible does record the sinfulness of, of, human, of humans and others. Yes? And humans and others can lie. Yes? Um, so, since it records it, it's truly recorded, though it's a recorded lie. So not everything in the Bible is true, and you must not fall foul of a simplistic approach to the inerrancy of Scripture. What's that? Oh, but, but Satan was telling an out-and-out lie at that point, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and this is the problem. He's not lying. This is what their experience is. Folks, again, I ask you, in those times when there's only one set of footprints in the sand, how do you feel? Left alone, abandoned by God. And that's when faith shows its quality. So what did Job say? Yet yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. How great is the faith of Job. 
who can't understand. Folks, do you know what Job was suffering? What, 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 was, the, what was the physical ailment he was suffering? Boils. Boils. You know anything about that in the history of the Old Testament? It's one of the plagues of Egypt. This is what God does to his enemies. And in Deuteronomy 28, when Israel breaks the covenant, he will send the boil of Egypt upon the, the nation. So when you are suffering covenant curse, you are separated from God. And the assumption is there's something wrong with you. Job knew that he was not suffering because of some specific sin in his life. He knew that. He couldn't reconcile it, but he trusted God anyway. And watch him as, as the dialogues unfold in the, in the book. I started to say the gospel of Job. In the book of Job, uh, watch as the dialogues unfold. He turns more and more away from the three friends, no longer even talking to them. He's, just, he's essentially laying out his, 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 uh, his case before the Lord. So he turns more and more away from them, more and more toward God, though he can't understand God. And that's part of the point of the book of Job, brother. So Psalm 44, and then when it ties into Romans 8, okay, the point of it is basically that there will be times in your life where you're going to feel powerless, but I will not forsake you. Yeah, and we're not even there yet. I got it. Why are they out to, to battle in the first place? Well, first thing you've got to know is something about the theology of warfare in the Old Testament. Why is Israel to engage in warfare? Why? Said conquer the land. Why do you? Why must they conquer the land? So genocide. The point is to carry out God's wrath against sinful people. Yes, yes. Why is that all? Yeah, you'll become one of them. Is there any larger purpose? Yeah, let me even let me even theologize it a little more to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Who is king in Israel? First Samuel chapter eight, when they ask Samuel for a king, who are they rejecting? God, not Sam, not Samuel. Now this is before Saul. This is when Saul is chosen. So so they're rejecting God as king. So, so by going into the land and taking it, they are establishing the kingdom of God on earth. It's, it's a larger goal than simply taking the land. It's a larger goal than simply having a place to live. It's a larger goal even than judging the wicked. It's, the goal is to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Are you with me here? So if that's the goal, then in their warfare, God ought to support them. Yes or no? Hmm? Yeah, but that's not part of the immediate theology of warfare. Um, so so um, now that brings me to verse 22. And verse 22 is our verse that's quoted in the New Testament. It is possible that Israel could, and David did, do some pretty bad things in his life. Yes? It is possible that some of David's wars might have been simply for gaining plunder. But Deuteronomy 20 actually expands our concept of, the, of, the, of warfare in the, ancient, in, in, in the Old Testament by saying 
that Israel's international policy, we, we have the Great Commission, yes? Their Great Commission is in Deuteronomy 20. Well, what's in Deuteronomy 20? It's the theology of warfare. When you go, so beginning at verse 11 about in Deuteronomy 20, when you go out to make, when you go out to make war, to any of the nations that are far off from you, you shall besiege a city, and when you, uh, when you capture it, I'm sorry, you are, I'm sorry, you are to besiege the city and offer it terms of peace. If they accept you, you enslave them. Doesn't sound good to us, does it? But if you keep enslaving cities, how many people can wash your dishes? What are you going to do with people that you enslave? Let me ask it differently. When Joseph bought all the cattle in, the, uh, all the cattle in Egypt, what did, what did he do? Bring them home for Pharaoh to, to milk? What did he do with all the cattle in Egypt? Slaughter them all so they get a big feast? He let the vassals take care of them. When he bought all the land in Egypt, what did he do with the land? Go out and plow the whole land of Egypt? No, he left it in the hands of his subjects. Yes? When he bought all the people in Egypt, did he bring them to the palace to fan Pharaoh? He got a real air conditioning system then. <laughs> well, the evident answer is no. They left, lived on the same land they'd always lived on, and they farmed the same land, and they raised the same cattle, but they paid a percentage to the Pharaoh. They became tenant farmers, as it were. And he tied, Joseph tied the people more tightly to Pharaoh than they had been politically before. It was a brilliant move, politically. He enslaved everybody. When everybody is a slave, no one is a slave. You, some of you know the name Bennett Cerf. I think, I think he wrote the book, You Don't Have to Be in Who's Who to Know What's What. I, I think it was Bennett Cerf. He grew up in um, very poor circumstances in New York City during the 1920s and 30s. And he said, everybody was poor, but we didn't know it because everybody was poor. We were like everybody else. And he said, we didn't live a poor life. We just didn't have a lot of money. He said, we went to the museums and we went to concerts and we, we, we took music lessons and we were expected to do well at school. Yes? Uh, uh, when everybody's a slave, nobody's a slave. Am I making sense to you? When you enslave enough cities, you leave them all in their towns, but they pay tax to the king in Jerusalem. Are you with me here? So, what if David is telling the truth? What if this is not a war for a land grab? What if this is not a war simply to get more wealth? What if this is the kind of war that God taught Israel they must carry out? And the king is selected specifically to be a war leader. So when the people in 1 Samuel 8 say, we want somebody to lead us out and to bring us in. It's not so that we can go out and, and farm our territory. It's so that we can go to war and come home safely. Except Solomon. Well, Solomon didn't have to, but... But for the most part. But he did have to do some. The, the point is that the, the, the function of a king, among other things, is to be a war leader. And David is a war leader. Are you with me here? 
So look at verse 22. For your sake, we are put to death all day long. How can the psalmist say that if this is a land grab? How can the psalmist say that if all they're doing is increasing the wealth of the nation? Unless they are doing what God commissioned them to do. Are you with me? The psalmist cannot say, for your sake we are put to death all day long. We're counted like sheep to be slaughtered. What I suggest is this, that they are not only being faithful to the covenant, they are being faithful in the most remarkable way to the covenant. You know, you know the most important verse in Deuteronomy 6. It, and the Lord love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and he doesn't tell them a thing about how to do that in the rest of chapter 6. He tells them about how to protect it. He tells them about dangers that are going to arise. But he doesn't tell them what loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength is going to look like. Until chapter 7, when you enter into the land that the Lord is giving you to possess it. There will be nations greater and more powerful than you, but you must not fear them. You will make war with them. You shall not make a covenant with them. You shall show them no mercy. You shall make war with them and drive them out or, or destroy them. Utterly destroy them. As Rick said a few minutes ago, put them under the ban. Uh, folks, it's one thing to shoot. Oh, it's already 12, gracious. It's one thing to shoot at um, a distance of 100 meters at an enemy. It's another thing to take a sword and kill the enemy face to face. It's another thing to take a sword and kill an elderly person or a woman, or a child. The question then becomes, whom do you love? Do you love God, or do you love people? Is your human mercy more important to you than your service to God? Are you with me here? And that's what Israel had to do. Read Deuteronomy 20 sometime and see the policy on war, what they are to carry out after they take the land of Canaan. So, if the psalmist is right here, is there any other evidence that the psalmist is right? Let me give you one more piece of evidence. How does any passage get into the Bible? God ordained it and inspired it. Then God inspired Psalm 44. And Psalm 44 is God's testimony. Look again at verse um, 20. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. So the psalmist even calls God as a witness to the faith, their faithfulness to the covenant. So verse 24, he closes the psalm with a, uh, with a plea, a pained, anguished plea. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Now, brother Korah, the Lord neither sleeps nor slumbers. We do not say such things about God. Amen? No, when you're in pain, you cry out to God with all the pain and all the bitterness and all the suffering because God has huge shoulders and he can bear everything, all your anger, 
And he understands it because he knows what, you, what he's put you through and understands where you are. Where our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love, he says. They're not asking for, for, for victory simply for themselves and the glory of the name of Israel. They're asking victory for the reputation of God. Am I making sense to you? Then why is this verse here in, Psalm, in Romans 8, uh, 36? It's what you said just a few minutes ago. You were right on target. God actually leads us out beyond our faith, beyond our concept of him. Because he is an infinite person and he wants us to know more and more of him. How will we learn unless he leads us out where we can learn? And it's not a matter of simply learning facts about God. It's getting to know God in the person that he is. So he led Abraham into famine, not telling him, not preparing him, not once for famine. He led Abraham into, into, into old age never once preparing him for the fact that he was going to have to wait 25 years for the birth of his son. Yes? And he leads people out beyond their faith, and when, they, when he leads us out beyond our faith, it is part of the suffering that God is bringing into our lives to make us like Christ. And we are, we are, we are best served, and God's name, God's reputation is best served, when in the midst of our pain we can cry out, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Because I know that however large the pain, no matter how unbearable it seems, he's producing Christ-likeness in us. And brothers and sisters, in eternity, we will praise God for the sufferings. And so Paul can close. But in these things, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor, nor um, angels, nor, no, I'm sorry, nor powers. You have powers, do you? Here in verse 38. Powers. This word is translated miracles in the Gospels frequently. Nor height, nor depth. Now, why would height, nor depth? See, folks, since Jesus said, and lo, I am with you always, he's never with you in an airplane. <laughs> Amen? Nor height, nor depth. Why does he bring that in? I think he's just scraping all the synonyms he can get. Every possible thing that you could think of separating you from the love of God. Shall be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some people say, well, no, no created thing will be able to do it. But I can jump out of his hand. No, you're a created thing. Then, what is our proper view of suffering? And especially, what is our proper view of suffering for each other? When I look at you suffering, you know you could get a job at a grocery store. It is not to fix us. It's not to, my job is not to fix you. My job, your job, 
is to help each other trust in the midst of suffering. We're, we're seeing this in the book of Hebrews too. Um, um, but the, 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 the great issue is for us to learn to trust in the midst of suffering. And when you can do that, you're getting mature in your faith. Let's close with prayer. Father, what a psalm. And what a book of Romans. Thank you for giving them to us. Now teach us, Father, rather than looking at the suffering, we should hold on to what we've learned while we're in the light, not giving it up in the darkness. Because what we've learned in the light is true. Then it can carry us through the darkness to the dawn of the dawning day. And when that dawning day comes, Father, may it be soon for us. When that day comes, we will be able to look back and see all those hard things and find that you were faithful in every one of them and you've made us like Jesus. That's our grand destiny, Father. Give us faith to trust you for that even as we go through the sufferings. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.